Well met, friends. I'm Steph Midlock. And I'm Jude Vase. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the alluring adaptations of Tolkien's Legendarium. Hi, Jude. Hi. How are things? Uh, very <laughs> exciting. An exciting time to be a Tolkien nerd, right? It is. Oh my gosh, it's the best time. And like... To any new folks who might be joining us after a certain something is happening, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Atherbeth. Yeah, this is a uh, a wild time to be jumping into to Tolkien podcast because everybody's Tolkien fandom in general. It's such a I, I mean, where to begin? <laughs> right, right. But let's uh, let's let's get our our uh, housekeeping out of the way, and then we can talk about it. Sure, absolutely. Recently, James and I were invited to be guests on a podcast called Character Creation Cast, which is with Ryan Bolter and Amelia Antrim. It is a really great, awesome podcast. They're almost, they're just a little bit older than we are, so mm -hmm. they've been around for a bunch of years now. They discuss RPGs, and then they create characters using the system. Um, so if you guys, and of course when I say RPGs, this is tabletop roleplay gaming. So if you're ever interested in kind of getting into that world or even checking out a new game or system, um, they have got so many amazing people, like creators, the people that wrote the games, people who are just game enthusiasts like James and I. I remember, and when I say James, I mean our wonderful, amazing Atherbeth editor, James Pearson, and also the lore master of the Hobbitween episodes from October 2020 and October 2021. <laughs> so the two of us went on there and we talked about the One Ring TTRPG. So that is by uh, Francesco Nepatello and his great team through Free League Publishing, which is a Swedish group. And uh, it's all about the third age of Middle-earth and it's all set in Eriador, which is dope. So you can go to the Shire, you can like meet some Hobbit, you can be a Hobbit. It's the coolest thing. Uh, it's so a great we, game. It's, it's a, a really game. great game. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Yeah, yeah. So we, so James and I went on character creation cast and talked all about it and made some really dope characters. Uh, and I, I think you should check it out. It's going to drop sometime in September of 2022. If you're so pretty soon after this, if you're listening uh, concurrently. Otherwise, you can find Character Creation Cast on the web at charactercreationcast.com and on Twitter and Instagram at creationcast. And they are so wonderful. Um, Ryan and Amelia, thank you so much for having us. We, we had a blast. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jude, why, why are we doing What are we doing? And why are we doing it? <laughs> I'm well, lost. This is our first... 50th ding dang episode which kind of snuck up on me <laughs> 50 episodes is pretty good for any podcast frankly a lot of people start podcasts and not a lot of podcasts get to 50 episodes we do this monthly yeah. so that I, I, you know i'm not great with simple math but that's a lot of that's a lot of time that yeah. we've been doing this and these episodes are not the easiest to put together sometimes yeah we are not not to uh minimize the effort that that people put into like read long podcasts or anything like that but we do a lot of analysis we 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 put a lot of uh work into these thesis episodes and these report episodes that we do they i mean short of actually not working uh i don't know that we could do them any faster than once a month so to hit 50 is really something that I'm quite proud of. Me too. 
It's Yay. also, uh, as <laughs> you probably it. know, this episode will be dropping shortly after the premiere of Rings of Power. Whoa, the Amazon show. Yeah, which I think we agree is a fairly momentous moment. Momentous moment. <laughs> no, that was good. I liked it. Uh, I liked it. <laughs> in in Tolkien fandom. I think back, when I think about this moment, I think back to our interview with Dawn and how she talked about the uh, way Dawn that- Dawn Walls Thuma, just to say, yeah. We've yes, had two yes. Dawns on. <laughs> oh, that's true. We have. Yeah. Wow, that's <laughs> <Double> weird. Dawn. <laughs> um, yes, Dawn Walls Thuma, who talked about the fan fiction survey. And she mm. talked about how when the films came out, after each film, there was this massive spike in yes. fan participation in the fan fiction community, which I think you can roughly extend to meaning there was a massive spike in the general fandom yeah. for Lord of the Rings. And I think that that is going to pale in comparison to what we're about to see happen with this Amazon show, because it's going to be not just a film that drops. It's going to be theoretically five seasons starting with this season. And it's going to be episodes every week. There's going to be discussion and it's a big moment. And I mm -hmm. think more even beyond that, it's tackling a time and a place in Middle Earth that is not familiar yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah. And that is going to provoke a ton of interest in the lore and the mm -hmm. world and the parts of Tolkien's legendarium that is not well known. That's going to drive people to engage with the material like in ways they haven't before. Yeah. And it's a totally new and exciting time in our, our little space of, of the internet. So I wanted to come up with an episode that both celebrated our achievement for uh, 50 episodes, but also reflected on, on that, mm -hmm. on, on this moment. Um, so we're going to go back to the very beginning of Atherbeth and talk <laughs> about on fairy stories again. Uh, but specifically, the cauldron of story is mm. a something from on fairy stories that Tolkien talks about. We're going to talk about the cauldron of story because I think it's a great metaphor for talking about Tolkien and his feelings on adaptation, which I think is a pretty good topic t to tangle with. Yep. Right I think now. you're I think you're exactly right. I'm so excited. There's going to be a lot of hot takes flying around the internet and why not go back to the original OG source of Tolkien himself and That's figure out right. what he thought about it so that we can just allow each other to like what we like and not have to, if you know, you're, if you're looking to it. to <laughs> walk into an internet fight and shut up the neckbeards that think that Tolkien would hate all adaptation, this is the episode for you. Yeah! Woo! I want that on a throw pillow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, I'm so glad you suggested this. I'm very excited. I'm also going to say to anybody who's listened to the episode one of Atherbath, it is, I was not very good. And I'm very glad to be given this chance to chat about this again and to kind of do a do over. Uh, so well, thank you for that. Yeah. We've got uh, many versions of a path to tread. So Ooh. let's dig in. Yay! Let's get into the cauldron of story. Let's start there. 
Cool. Because this is my my thesis is based on the cauldron of story. So let's let's talk about what the cauldron of story is, and then I will present my thesis. Yeah, man. And then some supporting material. Ooh. So that sounds like a really well written essay. I'm already excited. You know. It's almost like I went to college for seven years and only got a bachelor's degree. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that is okay. It's okay. It's good. We're good. Well, (laughs) I don't know if it's okay. My student loan payments would would suggest otherwise. But The Cauldron of Story comes from On Fairy Stories, which is adapted from a lecture that Tolkien gave in 1939, in which Tolkien is basically presenting his feelings on, on fairy stories. But specifically, he's talking about, he's defending them as a literary form. He's saying, why are these worth talking about? Why are these valuable to be writing about and studying? And we're not going to talk about all of On Fairy Stories. I would love to go back and talk about On Fairy Stories again, Mm -hmm. because I do think that On Fairy Stories is a fairly, I mean, it's it's dramatically underread for a piece that is Tolkien's mission statement for why he writes what he writes his entire life. It is him standing up and saying, this is important and this is why you should care, why everyone should care that fantasy is good and important. Yep. And people don't read it and it boggles the mind that it's it's not well read. Okay, but I'm going to say from like episode one after Beth Stephanie, like this is very dense. It's not that long, but it's very dense. It's And it's not... His writing style in this, because I think it was made to be done orally first, it's not the easiest to read. And no. it's very and like, I, what, Tolkien? I, are you I kidding me? fully grant that. <laughs> but I do strongly believe that, like, if you want to know why Tolkien is doing what he is writing, what he's writing, and why Tolkien spent his entire life writing one thing mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes— you have to read on fairy stories. Agreed. Because this is, it's his, it's his thesis statement about why Middle Earth is important to him. Yep. He's talking broadly about fantasy, but he's thinking specifically about Middle Earth when he writes it. Which is interesting because if you think about the date that this came out, this came out, as I said, in 39 the hobbit was only a couple years old at this point and lord of the rings wasn't until 54 right through 55 now we know from uh, you know so many of his biographers and like john garth and you know carter and stuff that he had was already even from a young man doing this sub creation so it was already in his head but it is interesting i think that this piece predates like his greatest masterpiece of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I think you can argue that this is why Lord of the Rings is so good, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I also think there's a lot of people that, that tend to believe that this is, it's around this time that he wraps the Hobbit into Middle Earth, that he starts mm. thinking about the Hobbit as maybe this is a Middle Earth thing. Not all the way. That's not until like the Lord of the Rings, but... That's this is the point at which he starts thinking that maybe I need to go back and start thinking about the Hobbit as part of Middle Earth and things like that. So interesting that it wasn't originally right, and yeah. that's why you have changes and stuff that are things that kind of don't line up correctly all the time, right. Yeah, pretty dope. So let's talk about the cauldron of story. Yeah, this is a metaphor, 
Yeah. I like it. In the middle of On Fairy Stories, he's talking about how fairy stories work. What's their their function and their role and how they interrelate with stories generally and with myth. And he brings up the cauldron of stories saying, speaking of the history of stories and especially of fairy stories, we may say that the pot of soup, the cauldron of story has always been boiling and to it have continually been added new bits, dainty and undainty. And then a bit later, he says, it seems fairly plain that Arthur once historical but perhaps as such not of great importance, was also put into the pot. There he was boiled for a long time, together with many older figures and devices, of mythology and fairy, and even some other stray bones of history, such as Alfred's defense against the Danes, until he emerged as a king of fairy. Can I also add another quote in here? Please, yeah. By, by, so Because he, he talks about the soup and the bones, and he says, By the soup, I mean the story as it is served up by its author or teller, and by the bones, its source material, even when, by rare luck, those can be with certainty discovered. So I think that's kind of cool, the story yeah. and, its, and, its, uh, and its building blocks. I think what he's saying here, to sort of unwrap the language here, mm-hmm. what I think, to me, what the, the cauldron of story is and what he's saying here is what people do with story is we take familiar themes. And this is not anything revolutionary. We, we call them tropes or memes or whatever. And we put them into this cauldron and they, they sit there and they boil and they come out differently. But King Arthur, I think, is the most interesting one that he specifically calls out. I took a class many, many years ago from Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. And it just happened to be coming out right when The Hobbit came out, the, the first of The Hobbit movies. And someone asked him what he thought of the movies coming out. And he said, he, he, he specifically referenced King Arthur. And he said, I think, he said, I think of King Arthur when I think of adaptation. You know, in the Middle Ages, every generation would rewrite the King Arthur myths to fit their literary forms, their, their songs, their poetry, whatever was popular at the time. And as they did so, they would inject whatever cultural shit was going on with them. You know, they were Welsh myths. They were French romances. They were whatever was going on in the cultural zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And this is not like new. This is just how stories work. Hmm. That things get thrown into this cauldron and they boil away in the cultural subconscious and then they get fished back out. And I think you see this in a lot of other ways, too, because if you look at, uh, I found a great article as I was researching for this online, and I will provide a link to it. This was written on a blog called The Aficionado. I cannot, I don't have an author byline on it. Yeah, it says their name, that her name, uh, she, her, they, them, Alex. Alex, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, by someone named Alex, who talks about the relationship between the cauldron of story and fan fiction. And specifically talks about the way that you can look at themes in fiction like giant robots or magical girls or things like that. She also talks about things like some of the characters in the romance genre from, um, what's her name? Jane Austen. These romance tropes that come out of Austen. These, these tropes, these themes, these classic character archetypes brew in the cauldron of story and they come out over and over again. And I think Tolkien recognized that 
Because when you look at his own works, you do see characters that have been fished out of the cauldron of story. Some of them with varying degrees of freshness from the source material. Obviously, the most obvious one is Turin Turambar, who is got more than a passing resemblance to Coolervo's story. Many, oh, many from points. from the Finnish Kalevala? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. Um, okay. Then there's other, there's other pieces there. Yeah. Parts of the, dra- like a lot of his dragons share familiar pieces with dragons from old English stories. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that stuff. He was, that was what Tolkien was all about. His story, his stories were very much him taking all of the pieces of fairy that he loved most and putting them together. Right. He says there's basically three things that have played their part in producing the intricate web of story. This is, again, from On Fairy Stories. And the things are invention, which is the most important, right? Creating new things. Diffusion, which is borrowing in space, right? And then also the last one, inheritance, which is borrowing in time. Where you're borrowing stuff from like your ancestors and history, whatever. Yeah. So I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about it too. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this is a really interesting, a metaphor for adaptation in general. Because in the modern time, we have accelerated this process with adaptations where we are taking stories and we're like, you know, we're like flash frying them. In yeah. the cauldron of story, as opposed to letting them, mar- <laughs> letting them, you know, slow cook in there. Um, that's my favorite thing ever. That's really good, Jude. But you know what? That's just part of our literary tradition, so to speak, right now. It's how we're interpreting these stories is we're taking a story and we're, we're re- re- rewriting it mm-hmm. our own way. Whether or not you approve of that, that's, I, I feel very strongly that this is a thing that Tolkien would identify as very much being in keeping with the cauldron of story. Mm-hmm. So in that spirit, I, I would like to, sorry, you have a, you have comment no, face. I do have comment face. I don't want to take us off. No, you're, you got good flow. I don't want to ask this. I'll, it's okay. Please. Well, no, ask. all right. Later in on fairy stories, I just had, this is a question for you. So yeah. I just, cause I want to know how this fits in with what you just said. Right. Yeah. So, He said, Tolkien says that fairy stories offer four things for people, right? Fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. And uh, and we talked about this in episode one because it is familiar to me. Yeah. Um, And so in the section, a a few pages later, he's talking about the idea of recovery. So this is being something that that fairy stories can give back to us, right? Regaining a clearer view of things as they were as we were meant to see them, not in the way that we have made them our own, right? Like I see your cat my way. So and what he's saying is is that when we do that we it's like a we appropriate these things. He says like we basically take them into ourselves and we hoard these these ideas and these tropes, I guess you will, and we acquire yeah. them. And when we do that, we actually cease to look at them again because they just become part of us. And that fairy stories allow you to recover from that and to let go of that possession and to like see it in a different way. And that that's, you know, not something that is mine, right? So how does that fit into 
the cauldron of story. I guess what he's saying is the cauldron of story is not just a personal thing. It's not our own cauldron of story. It's cauldron of story for everyone. It's it's community. Yeah. Okay. It's cultural. Very much. And so once we let go, and so maybe letting go, I, I just liked this this section, this recovery section. Absolutely. Because I feel like what he's asking us to do is not to hold on to our view of what a thing should be, but instead instead allow the secondary world building to take you away from your view of it, right? And to like yeah. and and that is 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 the gift of it of a really good author, right? Is to Yeah. I think it's very much so. Yeah. Because he's saying, I think what he's saying there is that what recovery offers is Mm -hmm. an escape from that selfish hoarding of an idea of Mm -hmm. what that, what that thing means and finding in sharing it and in seeing how others view it, you connect to other people with it and you connect to the wider story of it. And that seems so important right now in this moment of Tolkien fandom where people you know, want to hoard what they think Tolkien's writing is or Tolkien's stories are. Mm -hmm. But Tolkien himself is telling you not to do that or to, like, let that go, right? Or, or like, when you do that, if you do that, you cease to see the thing for what it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't know. I I think that's kind of beautiful. So, okay, please, if you don't mind, tell us more. So we've kind of talked about this cauldron of story and we've expanded on it a little bit, but I wanted to now dig in a little bit and look at what did Tolkien have to say about adaptation more, more specifically. Yeah, because adaptation is a hot button thing, right? People get real mad about it. Yeah, they do. This is a subject I've talked about in the past about being something that I, I have sort of an academic interest in. I am pro-adaptation. I think I'm, I'm always interested in what an adaptation is doing. Mm-hmm. I don't always enjoy every adaptation, but I'm always interested in what it's doing. Sure. What so, is it trying to do? <laughs> well, what, what it's doing, whether or not they succeed in what they try to do, what, what they're doing, how they approach it, all that stuff I think is, is really interesting. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about some of these things. There's a couple of famous letters. We're primarily looking at his letters here. So yeah, so you're you want to look at what Tolkien himself thought about adaptations of his own work? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, not gotcha. just his own wor- his own work, but gen- adaptations generally, but specifically of his own work. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Nice. There is a letter. We're going to start with letter one thirty one. We're not we're not going like chronologically here. I'm kind of jumping around thematically. Okay, and to anybody who who is new, um, you you can read the. I think a lot of them are online, but there's also a great edited by Humphrey Carter. There is the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, which has all of these as well. It's really uh, all nice, but one. kind of all but ooh, okay, yep. all right, all but one apparently, which I think Jude's going to talk about later. But yep. um, but definitely check out uh, the letters. They're so interesting, and you can really get a feel for Tolkien as a as a dude, <laughs> as a as a salty old man. Uh, even from <laughs> even from youth, uh, I have quite a bit. Well, of, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> quite a bit of empathy with uh, the young Tolkien. Um, <laughs> okay, so continue. so there is a letter. Letter one thirty one is a famous letter uh, because in it he. Uh, oh, let's start with the date. We, sorry, we don't actually yes, have a date on this one. No, it's to uh, Milton Waldman, who is uh, an advisor and editor in London, and he is. Basically pitching the Silmarillion. The book says it was probably around late 1951. I think that's important to note. And keep in mind that Lord of the Rings came out in 1954, the first Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he's 
he's pitching the Silmarillion as a companion volume to Lord of the Rings. He doesn't mm-hmm. think that the two of them are separable. Mm. Uh, so he wrote this banana pants, huge letter. It's like 10,000 <laughs> words that summarizes the Silmarillion, like the arc of the War of Wrath and all that stuff. And it has his sort of thesis for it, why he went about to do it. And it has some famous quotes in it, including this one. But people tend to leave off the back of this quote. Mm. So it starts off, But once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen. I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger founded on the lesser, in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths. I'm sure you recognize this. Mm-hmm. Because this is the mythology of Br- of Britain quote yes. that everybody recognizes. Right. But towards the end of this letter, it continues to go on and it says something that a lot of people leave off. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycle should be linked to a majestic whole, yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. I like that. So, so this is so this is just in case someone doesn't know what what is the mythology of Britain thing because I think so that's important. The, he's to, basically to saying that he wanted to create with the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion a mythology for Britain, which he felt okay. was lacking. Mm-hmm. But what he's saying in this letter is. This is a very heavily quoted letter where he's ta- supposedly talking about, not supposedly, he is talking about what he thinks the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings are mm-hmm. and what they're supposed to do. And right there at the end, he very explicitly says that he has left room for other minds and hands to fill them in. But then he writes absurd. What does that mean? Absurd, period. Well, look at the start of the quote. Do not laugh. But okay. once upon a time, I had, I had a mind to take a body to make a body of more or less connected legend. So he's sort of being self-deprecating, saying, "I set up, I set up to do this very bananas enormous okay. task. It was absurd." Oh, but, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But bear in mind, he says it's absurd, but he's still doing it. Yeah, <laughs> this is one of those things where he's being self-deprecating, but like. It's not stopping, even though he's saying, please don't laugh, and it's absurd. He's still, I mean, he's going to keep doing it until he dies. So Yeah, and I love that. Yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. I love that. So, yeah, so, so you're saying that he's saying that, like, yeah, he intentionally. I think it is very difficult, very, very difficult to read this quote and not infer that he is explicitly saying that he wanted other people to be writing in Middle Earth. That's a hot take. To me, that is an ex- Yeah. To me, this is an explicit invitation to fan fiction. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Not that we needed one, but we're happy that it's here. No, that's yeah. dope. I mean, and I think a lot of people would like, yeah, as you say, they leave off the end and this, and that is a crucial, a crucial thing, right? Yeah. And I guess, yeah, that's cool. So that, and th- we have a couple of other quotes about- mm-hmm how he felt about other people involved with his works. In letter 201 and 202, Mm -hmm. uh, these were written uh, September 7th and September 11th, 1957. Mm -hmm. He's discussing a company wanting to make an animated Lord of the Rings film. Uh, He (laughs) is writing first in 201 to Rainer Unwin, his publisher, Mm -hmm. and in the second letter, 202, to Christopher and Faith Tolkien. 
talking about this pitch. So in letter 201, he says, I am quite prepared to play ball if they are open to advice and if you decide that the thing is genuine and worthwhile. That's to Rainer Unwin. Yeah, he basically was like, well, they, you know, he sat and listened to, he read their synopsis. He said, it's pre, it's very compressed. Like things are kind of overcrowded. Things get confused. They, they change stuff that I don't love. But even despite this, however, I am quite prepared to play ball if they're open yeah. to advice. That's pretty cool. So he said like he's willing to entertain this yeah. being made into a film. And then this is my favorite letter in this conversation. <laughs> this is the one that I like to throw at people in arguments on the internet uh, <laughs> when they are like, Tolkien would spin in his grave. And I'm like, you know what? In letter 202 <laughs> to his son, Christopher, mm-hmm. he writes, the storyline or scenario was, however, on a lower level, in fact, bad, but it looks as if business might be done. Stanley, you and I have agreed on our policy, art or cash, Either very profitable terms indeed or absolute author's veto on objectionable features or alterations. Now, I ask of you, Amazon paid a literally record amount of money to make this show. Do you believe that that qualifies as cash? Yeah, baby. Art or cash. Woo! And on top of which, the the estate also got that absolute author's veto. Oh, they did? The estate, yeah, the estate got con- got to stand there and veto anything they didn't like that touched anything outside of the, the explicit appendices. Gotcha. The estate got both, wow. art and cash. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so you, so actually, Tolkien would have been like, dope, let's do it. Yeah, Drop Tolkien the mic. would be giving Simon, to- Simon Tolkien, his, gr- his, his grandson, mm-hmm. a fucking high five <laughs> for this deal. That's great. I love that. That's great. I wish all the trolls could know this. We should. I'm we, sure we should, they wouldn't care. Uh, <laughs> we need to get a t-shirt cannon and. <laughs> yeah. Arter that Cash, said, Tolkien. <laughs> let's there. I mean, that said, Tolkien does have a reputation for being cranky about adaptations. Sure. And that's because he has a very well-documented disdain for Walt Disney and Disney pictures, Mm. which comes from a couple of letters, which I want to talk about because I think it's actually really interesting and it does a great job of expanding on why he has this disdain. Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because a lot of people will say, oh, Tolkien hated Disney, but but, but why? Yeah, but they don't say why. And I think that why is super important. Absolutely. So the first is letter number... 107. In letter 107, December 7th, 1946, to Stanley Unwin, he is writing regarding Horace Engels, who is proposing to do a German edition of The Hobbit. Uh, this is not the Nazi German edition. Now, this is, is this, is this a, you're saying a translation of the, yes. of the Hobbit into German language? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, with, gotcha. Uh, but specifically, he's referring to uh, the illustrations. Engels okay. is an illustrator and wanted to do illustrations. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Tolkien objected to the illustrations, quote, I continue to receive letters from poor Horace Engels about a German translation. He does not seem necessarily to propose himself as a translator. He has sent me some illustrations of the trolls and Gollum, which despite certain merits, such as one would expect of a German, question mark, are I fear too Disney-fied for my taste. 
Bilbo with a dribbling nose, and Gandalf as a figure of vulgar fun rather than the Odinic wanderer that I think of. Are these available to be seen? I have no idea. Oh my God. You know who, I we, see you know who we should so ask? You know who would know? Joel! Yes. We should make a note that we should ask Joel when we do our interview with Joel. Yeah, Joel Mariner. You can find Joel on Twitter at Joel Mariner, uh, uh, M-E-R-R-I-N-E-R. He's great. He's a PhD researcher um, and associate lecturer in art history at the University of Plymouth. And he loves Tolkien and illustration and image theory. And he's amazing. He'll know all about this. Ooh, all right. Let's definitely ask him. So I thought that was really interesting. So that's the first one that we see. The second is letter 13. This is the infamous heartfelt loathing for Disney letter. (laughs) It was written in 1937 to C.A. Firth, Allen, and Unwin. Mm -hmm. He is responding to the news that one of the, quote, outstanding firms of American publishers wanted to publish The Hobbit with color illustrations. Allen and Unwin wanted the illustrations to be in Tolkien's hand. He said that it might be advisable, rather than lose the American interest, to let the Americans do what seemed good to them, as long as it was possible, he should like to add, Mm -hmm. to veto anything from or influenced by the Disney studios. For all whose works, I have a heartfelt loathing. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, So that's pretty clear. This is a, well, is it though? Oh, because people will will quote this this line to imply that he hated animation or that he hated all movies or that he didn't want his movies done done at adapted. People will quote this line very vaguely without really understanding where it comes from. Mm. So influenced by the Disney studios. Yes, you're right. That could be a wider thing. That's maybe not just animation, not just the drawing style, but their whole kind of Disneyfication of of stories, right? Maybe. Yeah. And that's where our our last letter comes from. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is the letter to Miss J.L. Curry, which uh, we get from Sotheby's Literature, History, and Illustrated Books, number 10, July 2001, Oh, is this the one that was is not in the book? Yes. Oh, okay. This is not in the letters to Tolkien book. This was an autograph letter that he wrote that he wrote about Walt Disney, which offers a really interesting critique. I recognize his talent, but it has, it has always seemed to me hopelessly corrupted. Though in most of the pictures proceeding from his studios, there are admirable or charming passages. The effect of all of them, to me, is disgusting. Some have given me nausea. He is also very critical of Disney in his business practices. Simply a cheat, willing and ever eager to defraud the less experienced by trickery sufficiently legal to keep him out of jail. I found another great piece, which I will link to. Uh, This one on a website called Open Culture. Mm. This one was uh, by Josh Jones. Mm -hmm. This one was posted in 2018 which does a really good job of analyzing this particular letter and very neatly summarizes what I think is the root of, of this conflict that Tolkien has with Disney. And that is that I think Disney, the same reason people complain about Disney and Grimm, where Disney takes a fairy tale with all its myth and all its sharp edges and angles and fright and monsters and turns it into something twee. 
<laughs> and if you remember, one of the chief complaints that Tolkien had, if we go all the way back to on fairy stories, mm-hmm. in the lecture he was giving about on fairy stories, Tolkien was in this guy's house dissing his volumes of, of work about fairies because yeah. he found them inconsequential and twee and... Yeah, or like trite or something. Trite. If you If you don't know what twee means, yeah, just a bit Yeah, precious. and trite. And I think this is the root of his, of his issues with mm-hmm. Disney. He feels very similar, aside from the fact that he apparently found Disney to be a crook, which is accurate. <laughs> Walt <laughs> Disney had the, the, mo- the moral acumen of, oh, yeah. of a sweatshop boss right. uh, yeah. on a good day. Not Yikes. a charming guy to do business with. Sure. Um, but he did take these very kind of often very scary, aggressive, weird myths and turn them into cake frosting saccharin. I mean, I don't have to explain fucking how Disney movies work. Right. Super palatable to 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 yeah. like the masses, basically. Right. Not going to offend anybody. Well, <laughs> There's a funny uh, story related in one of the letters. I unfortunately don't have it off the top of my head um, where he discusses going to see Snow White with C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. And his chief complaint, well, not chief complaint, but he mentions that he liked the shadows, but he was very bothered by the names of the dwarves and how uh, they didn't look scary, which I think is (laughs) perfectly encapsulates this complaint. That, you know, he wanted these myths and fairy stories to retain the, the weight that they, that they had. If you look at the complaints that his son had about the, the Lord of the Rings films, there's a Le Monde interview that he gave after the films came out that mm-hmm. is also heavily quoted, where he basically said that they were mindless action films that disregarded all the philosophy and history in his father's works. I think you find the same spirit, the same complaint. Okay. I think it was a matter of taste for Tolkien. Okay. Because I, what I think we see here is Tolkien doesn't have a problem with adaptation. And he's even saying that I'm willing to put aside my personal taste as long as I'm getting paid. <laughs> as long as I but, have some veto as well. <laughs> well, it's art or cash. That's true. He's like, I'm willing to like let them do what they would will with it if I'm getting paid. Yeah. But if they're not paying me and if they're not like richly compensating me, then I at least want veto over the things that I object to. But the Disney thing, I think, is he had a specific complaint with the way Disney was interpreting fairy stories. Mm-hmm. It was not yeah. that he didn't like adaptation or he didn't like people doing fantasy in animation. He had a very specific complaint with Disney. Does that mean I think he would have a similar complaint with the way movies are made now? I don't know. Would he have liked... I think that he would have had... I think it's hard to guess what he would have thought about modern adaptations. Yeah. We All we have to go on is what Christopher had to say about the films. But I think that from what he said here, from these quotes that we've got, certainly I think he would have loved how many people read his stuff Mm -hmm. because of them. And I think he certainly would have appreciated how fucking much money his family (laughs) made off of the films (laughs) and off of the Amazon deal. Yeah. I mean, I I think so. I think like also 
at the end of the day, like if you're so worried about what Tolkien thought about adaptation that you won't allow yourself to like something that's that clearly says based off of the work of Tolkien, right? It's not an exact retelling. It's based off of. Then I think yeah. that's just sad, you know? Let yourself yeah, like it. Don't worry about it, you know? That's, Come on. That's your problem. Because yeah. the books aren't going anywhere. It doesn't erase the books. And if you if exactly you know, if seeing a TV show or a movie is going to ruin books for you, then you need therapy. Right. And the problem is not that TV shows exist. The problem is that you you have some some fucking issues that you need to work out with a paid yeah. professional. Yeah. I well, I just feel well, I don't know. I don't want to throw that around, but I do think that like that's that example of like hoarding something that we love to the point of and 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 possessing it and changing it in our own minds to the fact that we can't see what it was what you know, we can't well, if you're see be the, nice about it and professional. Um <laughs> we can't see like what it use what it really is, right? Because we've yeah. made it our own and we've we've sort of changed it and that and that is um Ah, not the way to go, I think Tolkien is, yeah, is kind absolutely. of saying. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to cover on the subject was the mm-hmm. idea of canon. Oh, canon. Oh, canon. So canon meaning? Canon meaning the idea of things being... The way they God, are. How, how do you mean? Yeah, I know. How do you... What, what's, what um, is, can we look up a good so example? So let's, let's put it... Canon, my, my sort of personal definition of canon is to use Star Wars is the example I use. And that's... Canon is what's in the Star Wars wiki. Right, it's the facts, or the, the the what's true and what's not about a fictional property. Yeah, it says a well. This I just looked up, you know, on the Oxford Dictionary, a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like the true stuff. The true stuff. The real stuff. And one of the other complaints with adaptation is that it changes. The, it changes things about the story that are, you know, that aren't canonical and makes them non-canonical. The famous one from the early stages of the promotions for uh, Rings of Power, for example, is the hair length of elves, if you can oh, believe brother. it. Brother. <laughs> or whether or not female dwarves have beards or right. nonsense like that. And this is a particularly vexing one for me, for Tolkien, because there is no, there's a, there's a Tolkien canon in the, in the literature sense of like, there is a list of books that, that are like the books you read for Tolkien, Mm -hmm. but 12 of them are books which chronicle all the ways in which he changed his mind about almost everything. (laughs) The histories of the history of Middle Earth is a twelve-volume set of books, which trace how the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings eventually contradict everything you know about them. <laughs> yeah, hey, that's a great virtually way to explain it. Ev- virtually everything you think you know about those stories changed before or after they were ch- they were published. Right, Sauron was a cat at one point. Yeah, like he constantly was evolving and changing those stories and especially especially the old stuff like the lord of the rings and the hobbit at least got published in his lifetime but the reason why we never got a published silmarillion is he could never stop fucking around with it long (laughs) enough to to publish it he could not leave it alone it was constantly changing wow so the idea that there's anything 
in this in outside of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit that you can, and even those I would say are a soft target. Yeah. That you can say are canonical is a I fucking know. joke. It's With true. Tolkien, the best you can do is pick which set of facts you want to work with at for any given piece mm. and then contextualize that information. So if you're use if you're doing a, a Quenya translation, you need to say, I am working with this era of Quenya, this grammar, this vocabulary, what what have you. If you're talking about a specific version of Baron and Luthien, you got to say which yeah. Baron and Luthien you're talking about. Is it from the Lays? Is it from the late Silmarillion? If you're talking about the cosmology of Middle-earth, are you talking about the early mythological cosmogony or the latter round Arda version? They, these are all vastly different things that have to be properly put in their context so that you can discuss them. Often they contradict themselves and each other. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. It is not a wiki. It is a, a, a man's lifetime of ideas and thoughts and dreams about a world that often goes in six different directions for any one thing. And you simply cannot expect it to be thoroughly and radically internally consistent. It's just not. Yeah. Just a few days ago, there were some really there was a really great line of tweets from Luke Shelton, who um Bless. Yeah, Good we guy. love Luke. Luke B. His Twitter is Luke B. Shelton, and he's a PhD in Tolkien studies, and he's lovely and so smart. and And he was writing about responses to people going, "Oh, great! Now there's going to be so much content, right? Because you know there's going to be all these spinoffs, and you know the ugh, it's all going to be crap and blah blah blue." And he says. Dozens of adaptations can be processed at the same time and each have their own resources because production of adaptations doesn't happen in a closed system. And he just basically says, like, I, I just think, like, that, that... Let's see, what does he say? Yeah, I don't know. He's talking about Middle-earth enterprises, but that, like, yes, there are going to be more adaptations and they're all, you know, they're going to be licensed and stuff, but, like, yeah, just chill. They're not going to be... I don't know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we should take this part out. Take no, that part that, out, no, that, that's an excellent point. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. In, in case you, you aren't familiar with, with what Luke's talking about, everyone has heard me rant and drop drop a dime on Saul Zantz and Middle-Earth Enterprises, the holders of, of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit licenses. Mm -hmm. And they put them up for sale, and I very confidently asserted that I was sure that Amazon would buy them, because why not? Uh, but they did not. Who did? The Embracer Group, mm -hmm. which is a group that I was already familiar with, shocked and bought them. Uh, Embracer previously came to my attention when they bought Asmodee Games. They are a European game company that owns fucking everything. They went on a buying spree a number of years ago before the market downturned. They, I mean, like Settlers of Catan, Carcassonne, Seven Wonders, oh. but also Fantasy Flight Games, which oh. uh, if you are in a nerd space... They Whoa. own everything. They have published Holy Star shit. Wars games. They have published Lord of the Rings games. They have published Marvel games. They have done innumerable games. Wow. And they're owned by Embracer now. Lord Legend of the Five Rings, a personal, uh, I don't know, blight or 
favorite. blessing on my uh, favorite <laughs> in my history. Wow. But yeah, they, Embracer bought them. They, they have been on a buying spree and they have bought all these properties and they are looking to like aggressively license and, and actualize all these properties. Wow. So picking, them picking up Lord of the Rings is bananas. They paid a hefty sum and they are looking to make their money back. And I think that's exciting. I'm, a, I'm strongly of the opinion that nothing they put out is going to take away the Atherbeth from me. Nothing yeah. they, t- they put out is going to take away all the books on my shelf. Yeah. What it will do is bring people into our fandom. Yeah. What it will do is it will make the next person whom there is somebody out there who is going to get their start writing, writing slash fiction between... Elrond and I don't know a dwarf. I don't know. Uh, they're going <laughs> to write some weird, some we- or maybe they'll write uh, some weird Silmarillion fan fiction that only a handful of people will read. That's where they'll get their start, and maybe that's all they'll ever write. But that will bring them joy, or maybe they'll go on like Tasman Muir, who who started in fan fiction and now she writes some of the biggest novels in, in fantasy. Yeah. It is going to bring so many people into our fandom and into this genre. And I cannot but be enthusiastic about that. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think that's great and nothing can take away the books. So why is more people not, not good? Yeah. I agreed. Agreed. I think that's beautiful. I'm so glad you said that it kind of oh, made me like feel a little teary. That was really good. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I'm excited to see the shows. Uh, I, obviously, this is coming out after this. We're recording <laughs> this before the the first two episodes drop, but yeah, uh, it will come out after. So I am very excited to see them. I don't know how we're going to cover them. I don't know if we're going to drop something on the feed after they come out or whether you'll just have to hear us scream and shout about it next month. Or come to or our Discord on or something. Twitter or yeah. yeah, certainly, certainly you can come on our Discord and see me shouting about it. I'm sure or, I yeah. will be shouting or you can about, shout it, on about it too. Yeah, come join us. Yeah. We want to hear what you think too. I think if you don't mind, I just wanted to reflect just kind of here at the end of all <laughs> not the end of all things, but at the end of episode 50, uh just about this aunt, my my experience of re of reading on fairy stories for the first time. Yeah. And if you <laughs> remember dear listener i actually hope you haven't listened to Atherbeth episode one <laughs> well jude is brilliant and i'm terrible and nervous and bad and uh and i didn't i okay remember I'd a few drinks i'd had a couple of libations <laughs> it's fine but listen jude i told jude everyone knows uh, well the story is i told jude that yes i would do this podcast with him when he first asked as long as i would quote never have to do any homework so <laughs> I, he's he's probably remembering that well. But like, yeah, so I didn't read on fairy stories when we first talked about it. I just let Jude tell me about it. And I will admit to you that four years later, I still had not read it. And so when Jude said, you know, let's, you know, when we were when Jude suggested this topic, uh, which I'm so glad you did, you know, it was finally time for me to read this, <laughs> this freaking essay. So I sat down and, you know, and I read it and I really loved it. I loved it. I chortled. I cried. 
a little like in certain places it was so beautiful especially the catastrophe part at the end but and then and then i sat and really thought about what yeah what 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 does this mean for me so i mean it doesn't really matter but i think in the end of the day i don't think i was truly ready to receive this piece back in atherbeth episode one i think back then i loved Tol. i i loved tolkien right i i had read the lord of the rings i'd read the hobbits i loved the movies so I loved him, right? But it's only after, like, seriously, 50 episodes of this show, countless hours and hours of research and and book reporting and trying to find all these sources and stuff, going down these, like, twisted paths of the legendarium with you, Jude, that the richness and the wholeness of Tolkien's world was is really... Is, I'm, I feel it now. I understand mm-hmm. it better. I feel like now I love Tolkien with, like, a capital L, because I love all the weird stuff that's going. I love all like the 12 stupid volumes with their going back and forth and making Sauron cats and all these things. <laughs> like, you know, I love all the bonkersness of Tolkien. And I think like reading on fairy stories now, after I've got, you know, a little bit more under my belt, I feel like I understand, like, like you said at the beginning, that this is the philosophical underpinning of everything he's done. This is the why. And I now have, now that, it's been four years of doing this with you and you kind of guiding me through this. I really, I now have the tools to kind of get a deeper understanding of this piece. So I am not absolving episode one past Stephanie (laughs) of not reading this, but I am going to, I am giving her a little slack. I think even if I had tried to read this, I don't think it would have resonated with me the way that it does now. And I guess I'm saying this because I feel like I've grown a lot and I want to thank you for that. For a your patience whilst I did that and while I continue to do that, but also you know challenging me on these topics and asking me to you know do more and more and giving me the license to do more, and then also like yeah I don't know yeah I, I I'm excited to keep learning because I know that it's a it's a journey that kind of never stops and um and and I and I guess at the end of the day it's good to go back and reread these things again and again. So I do hope maybe in the next 50 we'll, or sooner we'll you know we'll look re- look at the Atherbeth and some of these some of these bigger topics that I kind of glossed over because I didn't have a great um feeling of their importance yet. And yeah. So I just yeah. want to say thanks. This has been really fun and I hope we can I hope you want to keep doing it. I want to keep doing it. I hope people want to keep listening. Um yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really have treasured doing these 50 episodes with you, and it's really been a joy to see how you have come from I refuse to do homework to uh, <laughs> Steph's shorts. And that's been a really fun journey to watch, seeing you really come into your own as, as someone who, who has a, your own viewpoints and uh, opinions and a, a genuine, curious, academic mind when it comes to uh, Tolkien stuff. That's really fun, and I think it's made for our, our episodes dramatically better. So, uh, not I, just I, dick I, jokes. It's, <laughs> no, I, I've, I've, I feel like I've really picked up the slack on the dick jokes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. You're amazing. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> I, you. I feel no, like we we complement each other on this podcast, yeah. and I'm really happy that uh, we've done 50 episodes, and I hope we do 50 more. Me too. Uh, I guess that's it. Uh, yeah. I, Thank you. So, so I guess, so at the end of the day, let's, you know, I, I, maybe I'll eat my words, but I do hope we all continue to, to view all of these adaptations with an open heart and knowing that Tolkien would not have hated all of them 
And Not for what he's being paid. Right. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. I feel, wrap it up. I feel like we're done. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jude. Thank you for leading us through this discussion. Um, I think it's very poignant at this time, and uh, I, I learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Aramitic Jude. Steph can be found at the North Four, F-O-U-R. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond 5. Today's episode was produced by the excellent James Pearson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Yay! We did it! Sorry, I kind of talked over that, but I'm, I, I like it. <laughs> 50 episodes later, still don't know what our music sounds like. You just like. sound like a whale in distress. <laughs> I'm an adult. <laughs> oh my God, is that a whale or the Atherbeth thing? Who knows? It's both. <laughs>